doesn't matter who you are, where you've come from, we all dance with death. We all meet up at this giant party <laughs> where where death sort of dances along with us and takes us off. So uh, you can really tell he's he's a really cheerful guy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. Again, like great for dinner. I would love to sit down with him for an hour, but uh, you know, if I had to had to deal with this every day, which is funny because I have dealt with this every day, like reading and studying <laughs> his stuff and writing about it for for several years. But um, honestly, uh, as you get older, as I've gotten older, it's given me perspective. You're listening to What Happened in Baghdad, a podcast exploring the fascinating creatives that once called the Iraqi capital home. My name is Kermit Said, and for this episode, I was joined by Kevin Blankenship to talk through the life, work, and influence of a figure revered and reviled, the Syrian poet-philosopher Abu al-Ala al-Ma'arri. He's... <sighs> hard to pin down. In fact, one of his students, Al-Khatib Al-Tabrizi, said of Al-Mari that he was a man in perplexity. A man in perplexity. And this will, you know, come up as a theme throughout our conversation. Is it's, it's hard to pin him down because, you know, I think he himself would have found himself hard to pin down. Um, but, um, you know, he was a he was a poet. He was a philologist, a grammarian. You know, he's obsessed with language in, ever, in all things, but also obsessed with uh, sort of using reason as a way to get at belief uh, and to have a relationship with with the divine. Um, you know, skeptical in the sense that he m- mistrusted anything that was just received wisdom or received authority. Um, and uh, and you know, call, held himself, or I think would have thought he'd held himself to that same standard, but then asked of other people that they hold themselves to a similar standard. Is that in all things you should be you should examine consciously your belief. You should care about the language that you use. And I, you know, now that I think about it, I think that's one reason why he probably was so fixated on language is that he insisted on sort of clarity of speech because he insisted on clarity of thought as well. At the same time, it's funny because he often relies on sort of double meanings in words to be able to get around what might look like sort of dicey language or dicey thought you know, expressing things that would have been, um, you know, if not outright blasphemy, then uh, for some people anyway, then, um, you know, controversial opinions anyway. So it's funny that language can occlude as well as reveal. Um, and, I, I, you know, he, he sort of relies on both aspects of language. Anyway, all that's to say that, you know, this is a man who, uh, you know, for good reason has a, a, a reputation for being an interesting thinker someone controversial and who stirred up a lot of, of, you know, strong opinions, even within his own lifetime, pro and contra. Al-Mahdi was born in 973 Common Era, and he contracted smallpox at age four, supposedly. And he says of that, when I was four years old, there was a decree of fate about me or fate decreed that I could not discern a full-grown camel from a tender young camel just born. So blindness especially, you know, given these sort of secondary pre-modern sources is, is, can be a relative thing. So did he act, was he actually able to see, or was it just total blackness that he couldn't see anything? Um, you know, this, which he wrote later in life makes it sound like, you know, he, he, he might've been able to discern certain things at a distance, but at any rate, you know, f- 
for intents and purposes, he, he, he couldn't rely on his eyesight to read and to do other sort of basic things in his life. But uh, he, despite this, um, this disability, had a prodigious start, especially with language. In pre-modern Arab culture, pre-modern uh, Islamic culture, there's this association between people who are blind and prodigious memory. And Al-Mahdi's case seems to bear this connection out. So people who are, you know, again, they, the popular association anyway is that if you're blind, that it, somehow nature makes up for it by giving you, blessing you with memory. Anyway, Al-Mahdi had, had a very prodigious memory. In fact, there's one story told about him by his student, Khatib al-Tabrizi. One day they were out at mosque and they overheard someone speaking in another language. Tabrizi guesses that it might be, you know, Ar- Armenian or Azadi or something like this. And... Um, he asks Al-Mahri if he can understand what they're saying. And Al-Mahri says, no, I can't understand what they're saying, but here's what he said. And he repeats it back to him verbatim, just having memorized the sounds, even though he can't distinguish, you know, the words and, and tell him what he's saying. And, and that could be apocryphal. You know, this, this could be a legend about Al-Mahri. But the fact is that he did, he does know an incredible, he has incredible command of language and, and these sort of random obscure words that, you know, in, in some cases we can't find anywhere else. So that certainly does sort of bring home the point that he had a great memory. Uh, and his family was made up of uh, notables and judges and poets in this area, Marat and Arman, which is 70 kilometers outside of Aleppo, including his grandfather, Suleiman ibn Ahmed, who served as the chief judge of Marat and Arman. And, and Marat's own, own first teacher was his father. And we know this from one of two very moving elegies that Al-Mahri wrote after his father died. Uh, in about 1004 or 1005 uh, common era. Some of his other teachers at Aleppo, because you know, very soon after um, you know, reaching a certain age, he, he moved to Aleppo to study. Um, they, they include some people from the circle of Ibn Khalaway, who was famous at Saif Adawla's court in Aleppo as a grammarian and an expert on Quran readings. Ibn Khalaway died when Al-Mahri was only eight or nine. But uh, we find Al-Mahri lamenting Ibn Khalaway's loss to Aleppo in, uh, in the Epistle of Forgiveness, Risad al-Ghufran, would that God might protect Aleppo because that town, after Ibn Khalaway's death, no longer wore any ornament, neither spangle nor bracelet. And thus it was found to be far removed from Adab. And then another teacher when he was young uh, was a reciter or rawi of Al-Mutanabbi's poetry. This is Muhammad ibn Abdullah ibn Sa'ad. And, and there's a story preserved in one of the sort of secondary medieval sources about how Al-Mahri one time while reading Al-Mutanabbi's collected poetry or Diwan under, his, under this teacher's supervision corrected Ibn Sa'd's reading of it, that he, he mispronounced a word or something and, and Mahri intervened. And that by comparing the passage in question with a manuscript from Iraq, Al-Mahri's correction was proved to be justified. And if we take this as true, this story is true, we can infer that Al-Mahri knew Al-Mutanabbi's poetry from a very young age. Mm-hmm. I'm assuming that your listeners are, are familiar with who Al-Mutanabbi is, uh, both in terms of his, you know, the poetry itself, but also his stature in, uh, in classical Arabic literature. And indeed, Al-Mahri was deeply affected by, he loved Al-Mutanabbi's poetry and was deeply affected by it in terms of how he wrote his own poetry, especially his early works. Following in the footsteps of Al-Mutanabbi, Al-Mahri would journey to Baghdad, which though remained a major destination for aspiring poets, wasn't the same place that it once was. By the time Al-Mahri lived and wrote, Baghdad, the, the political power of the Abbasid Caliphs of Baghdad was certainly on the wane. But as more than one scholar has pointed out, 
the cultural power, the cultural prestige and capital of the, the way of writing and living at Baghdad sort of dissipated out and spread to everywhere so that, you know, people who wrote poetry, for example, would write in the same style using similar motifs as the great poets in the so-called golden age of Abbasid poetry. You know, people like Al-Bahturi, Abu Tammam, Al-Mutanabbi, these figures. So on the one hand, you know, like as you, as you sort of intimated, Baghdad wasn't, didn't have the same political capital as it once did, especially in, in light of these other two rival caliphs that I mentioned at the beginning. But on the other hand, you know, the, the cultural, literary, and social norms established at Baghdad became sort of coin of the realm. And, and everyone sort of adopted them to one degree or another. And, you know, then added, added their own um, sort of creative interpretations on them and things like that. But that for, for so long became sort of how, how people did things in these cultural and social realms. So, um, you know, Al-Mari moves to Baghdad. Where does he kind of fit into this kind of 10th century, was it? 11th century when he moved? Yeah, so beginning of the 11th century, um, you know, he would have been in his late 20s, maybe maybe around 30, but certainly no no older than that. So he's a precocious young man, uh, you know, moving from, you know, what today we would call a provincial town, um, you know, it, it, it's a cultural center in its own right, but nothing like Baghdad was, even at, at this later stage in the Abbasid era, and goes there to make his make a name for himself. As you, as you said, Kemal, the way I like to think of this is Baghdad was to classical Arabic poets like Los Angeles and Hollywood is to aspiring actors in America. You know, if you want to make it in the movies, at least traditionally, this is before streaming you know, Netflix and things like that. If you wanted to make it in the movies, you moved to L.A. and just started putting yourself out there. If in the, you know, in, in 10th century greater Syria, you wanted to make it as a poet or thinker in the Islamicate world, then you picked up and, and went to Baghdad. And that's most likely why Al-Mahari made his trip. And we know that from his early, so uh, Al-Mahari wrote two collections of poetry that we know of. Um, the first is called Sakht Azend, or the, the first Tinder spark, the first spark of the Tinder. And then um, the other one is Luzum Malayalzim, which you could translate as self-imposed necessity or refers to a, uh, um, a, a technical, a, a technique or a, a rhetorical move. Uh, we can talk about if, uh, later if we have time. But anyway, from his early poetry collection, we know that Amadi was in touch with several people employed in Baghdad libraries. One of these was Abu Mansur, Muhammad ibn Ali, who worked in the Dar al-Ilm, which is the name given to several libraries or scientific institutes established in Eastern Islamdom in the 9th and 10th centuries common era. Another librarian and scholar was Abu Ahmed Abdussalam al-Basri, who had been entrusted with supervising the Dar al-Qutub at Baghdad. Al-Mari has poems to both of these men in this early poetry collection. He expresses longing for Baghdad and mentions their weekly conversations on, on Fridays that they would have. Another uh, important person in Al-Mari's career was al-Sharif al-Murtada, who had a regular literary salon. And uh, this, this Sharif is the brother of the very famous Alid poet, Sharif al-Radi. And in fact, Sharif al-Murtada was a, was a poet in his own right. And there's this widely told anecdote about Al-Mahri's, that's supposed to explain why Al-Mahri eventually left Baghdad. It took a while, apparently, for Al-Mahri to ingratiate himself with this literary circle at, uh, you know, based 
at the salons of Sharif al-Murtada. And supposedly at one of these salons after al-Mari had already gotten himself in with this group, Sharif al-Murtada mocks the poetry of al-Mutanabbi, who, as we said before, al-Mari greatly admired. And in response, al-Mari quipped back and said, if al-Mutanabbi had written no verse other than the line, you ruined stations, have stations in our hearts. He should still be considered the best poet. If that's the only line he'd ever written, that's what mm-hmm. Al-Mahdi said. And here, what apparently Al-Mahdi is doing is implying a reference to Al-Sharif Al-Murtada himself in a line later in the same poem, which is, if disparagement of me reaches you from some deficient fool, then it's proof to me that I myself am faultless. And the insinuation here is that Al-Sharif Al-Murtada is the fool spoken of in the line and that Al-Mutanabbi is the faultless or perfect man. Mm. And that this implication wasn't lost on Al-Sharif Al-Murtada who supposedly had Al-Mahdi dragged out of the salon by his feet. Famously. Uh, famously. It seems extreme, but, you know, uh, lots of things like this supposedly happened. Um, you know, there's a paper to be written about violence in the literary salon among other things, because there's, you know, another famous story has to do with Al-Mutanabbi himself. Um, You know, when he took, it's funny, this teacher who taught Al-Mari, this grammarian Ibn Khalaway, um, got into it with Al-Mutanabbi at Saif al-Dawla's court over a line of poetry or some grammatical matter. Um, Ibn Khalaway tried to correct Al-Mutanabbi and Al-Mutanabbi retorted back and, and made an insult to him about his ethnicity because Ibn Khalaway was Persian, not Arab. And Al-Mutanabbi was a very strong, a very staunch sort of pro-Arab figure. Anyway, uh, Ibn Khalaway supposedly slapped Al-Mutanabbi. And this was in front of everyone, including Saif Adawla. And Saif Adawla didn't say anything, uh, which was probably the most insulting thing of all. And Al-Mutanabbi left after that and, and left the court of Aleppo and never return. Anyway, uh, you know, all this is to say that these things were not unheard of, you know, physical violence in these very, you know, you can imagine it would be very strange to go to like an academic conference or, you know, a cafe or something and have people talking about these very high-minded erudite topics. And all of a sudden like this fist fight to break out, but uh, you know, <laughs> it, it, it's not unheard of. Yeah. So generally the time in Baghdad for him, not very positive. It's, you know, it's a mixed bag because on the, on the other hand, you know, he did find uh, an accepting group of people at the salon for a time. Again, he, he ingratiated himself with them, impressed them enough that they were willing to let him in. Um, and, you know, as I mentioned before, he made friends with these, um, these librarians and these manuscript curators who, uh, who expresses fondness for. Um, and, you know, so I, I think uh, like so many things with Amari, you know, the way he portrays it, it often does come off as sort of a, a at the very least, a perplex, complicated um, time. It's also unclear exactly why he left. I'm sure there was more than one reason. You know, everything in life is is like this. You don't just have one reason for doing any one thing or making a decision. Um, mm. Even though sometimes people will say, well, he left because this happened. You know, he got dragged out by his feet from the salon, which like that would be enough for me to, you know, cause me to want to leave a city. Um, but, you know, whether it actually happened, that's another open question. But um, there were other apparently factors that led him to consider leaving or to actually leave, such as that he um, uh, his his father died not too like around this time. 
and his mother was ailing in her health. Another idea is that he, or another theory is that he ran out of money and, uh, you know, wasn't making enough to be able to sustain himself in this big city. Was there a lot of competition for this kind of patronage, Kevin? For like how many, I don't know, I guess, poets and writers were coming into the city? You know, you could, uh, you know, not to, not to make it close to the bone here for my um, working academic among the among your audience but it's a lot like it is trying to get a, a tenure track job in academia um you know there's there's so many people chasing so few slots it's probably even more so with something like you know getting a plum position as a court poet a court praise poet at this time it would be something more like being a rock star trying to you know how many how many thousands of people are like taking music lessons and learning how to sing and modeling and stuff like that for their mm. shot, uh, you know, at, at, at fame and fortune. And, you know, they say something like the, the people that we actually see on a screen, like in a famous show on Netflix or something like that, it's like 1% of everyone out there who's actually trying to make it. I imagine something similar to that. So t- short answer to your question is yes, there was very stiff competition. And certainly for the kind of person like Maadi, who even at a young age seems to have been a cantankerous personality, someone who didn't take too well to, um, you know, people insulting his reputation to um, calling his his knowledge of language and poetry into question, you know, who, who might have not <laughs> not worked as well with others as uh, as as, as might have been required of someone if they wanted to um, navigate sort of political straits and, and become a, a famous person like this. Um, you know, it would have been difficult. We fell in love with Iraq when we were young, wrote El Maori. We approached the water of the Tigris unparalleled. We visited the noblest trees, the date palms. We quenched our thirst without ever gratifying our desire. What a pity, nothing in this world will survive. As well as his trademark pessimism, we find in El Ma'ari's poetry a host of other unorthodox ideas, including veganism, of which he's thought to be an early advocate. As we now think of him, El Ma'ari was a cynic, he was a misanthrope, you know, he was a lover of the macabre. And, you know, you can't deny sort of his overall waspishness. It's hard to, hard to look past that. Um, and this reputation comes mainly from his two best known works, at least in the West. The best known one, the best known one is the Epistle of Forgiveness, Risalat al Ghufran. And it's known in the West, especially because for a time it was thought that it might have influenced Dante's Divine Comedy. You know, it's an ascension narrative, or it's actually ascending, ascending and descending because, uh, you know, the, the protagonist visits hell and other places too. Uh, and, uh, you know, and meets poets and grammarians and, and lots of people and has interesting conversations with them. Um, you know, he sees, he sees paradise. Uh, and, uh, you know, speaking of, of his veganism, he sees animals there who are, um, uh, you know, he, he sees predators chasing prey and consuming them and eating them. But then like the pre- the predators never, uh, like his hunger, he's still hungry. He doesn't like ever get full. Uh, so meaning he's still able to enjoy his meal and then him killing and eating the prey doesn't hurt them. In fact, they're like, they're, they're kind of like respawned. If you're like playing a video game or something like that, they kind of come back mm. into existence and are not hurt by this process. Anyway, all kinds of interesting visions. Um, and then the other work that he's known for that especially people read nowadays and, and they think of him as sort of this, um, you know, atheist free thinking hero uh, of, uh, of skeptics of religious, you know, 
skeptics everywhere is uh, this luzumelayism or some kind of called the, the luzumiet self-imposed necessity. But, um, you know, so some of these ideas that he's known for are, you know, especially associated with this concept in um, Arabic and, and Islamic civilization, which is zuhud. Um, hard to translate, you know, for a while people would translate it as asceticism, and it, it certainly does contain elements of that, but it's a broader concept and has to do with, you know, even renunciation, like renouncing the things of the world and, and focusing on, you know, things that are not worldly pleasure doesn't totally get at it just because um, for some who think and write about this concept, Zuhud, it has to do not with... It, some people go too far with it, according to some of these thinkers, in that they, these people who go too far with it, kind of incorporate world hatred into this idea that you have a contempt for the things of this earth and its pleasures and for other thinkers. So like there are some people who do take it like that. And Al-Mari is certainly among them. You know, in lots of his poems, he calls this world Um Dafr, which means the mother of stink. You know, this is this world is a fallen, sick place uh, where it's even a crime to bring people into it. And so this is another idea that he's associated with, which is antinatalism, um, you know, very famously. I see on our, our episode plan, you know, we have we have one touch to like point to bring up with his own epitaph <laughs> at the moment. But, um, you know, for other people who practice Zuhud or think about Zuhud, it doesn't have to do with you don't. It, world hatred contemptus mundi is not it's not a an absolute necessity of zuhud it's more about indifference so and this is also where this idea that like you don't have to be poor like you don't have to totally give away your money to to practice zuhud again this is according to some people it's just an indifference to it if money comes into my life great if money does not come into my life great it's this sort of indifference to the um, the vicissitudes, you know, whether they're good or bad, and in this way, it's it's almost like, you know, Hellenic Stoicism, uh, in in the sense that you are again sort of indifferent, not like for or against any of these things, but that like if they come into your life, it's great. If they don't come into your life, or they if they they're in your life and then they co- go out of your life again, you know, you're you're, you're unperturbed. El Mahari's controversial views make him a polarizing figure. Seen as a heretic by some, his Risalat al-Ghufran was banned from the International Book Fair in Algiers in 2007. In 2013, fighters from the al-Nusra Front beheaded al-Ma'ari statue during the Syrian civil war. A religious skeptic al-Ma'ari may be, but as Kevin suggests, to assign labels to him is to undermine his complexity. So many people do, they read the Luzumiyat, you know, I've met many, many people in the Arab world, especially who um, they're so drawn to what he says in the, the Luzumiat poems, because they seem to be, and, and, and we definitely read them as inimical to traditional religion. Um, you know, he has a, another famous line in which he says, there are only two kinds of people in this world, people with brains and no religion and those with religion and no brains. Uh, and so for someone who has a problem with traditional morality, traditional sort of religion as practiced, like organized religion, um, received religious authority, received wisdom. You know, in another line, he says, uh, you know, the, the, the books of the ancients, like the scriptures of the ancients are nothing but 
uh, legends and uh, and and myths, um, you know, and uh, so again, for someone you know reading today, especially in sort of a post Enlightenment era, where we can we can think of like a lack of well, not lack of belief, but like agnosticism or belief in nothing as you know an option among other worldviews, whereas like in Maori's time, you know that for most people that would have been like an unthinkable thing, like what you don't believe in anything. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> today, today it's more of, you know, more obviously more accepted and, and more of a thinkable thought, uh, you know, for someone reading that today, you know, that's, that's like a breath of fresh air. It's like, Oh, here's someone, who, you know, writing over a thousand years ago who, who thinks like I do uh, and who, who also has, you know, issues with religious authority. I can understand why that would be appealing. And I, and I, and I totally respect that that ignores a whole lot of things that he did say in which he praises God uh, and, and affirms, you know, sort of tenets of belief, even if he does it in a way that is like, kind of like being a gadfly. It's not that he necessarily has that he's, he's beyond the pale because of heterodox belief. In fact, you know, often he makes fun of things like that. He has many lines of poetry and statements in this epistle of forgiveness in which he makes fun of people, for example, who believe or who he thinks believe in reincarnation. Uh, you know, he has a famous a, a line in his Sakta Zen, his early collection of poetry, in which he says, if what you, you know, talking to someone who I believe his name is Isaac, he says, if what you say about reincarnation is true, meaning he's accusing this person of believing in reincarnation, he says, if what you believe is true, then your father Musa would be like Musa from the Quran who saw God and you, Isaac, would be like Isaac the slain, meaning like, you know, what Christians in the Christian narrative, Isaac is the son that Abraham is willing to sacrifice. Anyway, he's saying like, you would be these same people because you're saying that reincarnation would be true. And he's making fun of him first and also punning on his name and, and his, his patronym. All that's to say that in Mahari, probably the most heterodox belief he actually held was uh, veganism, you know, and, and for that, you know, it, it's an anachronism. It's the closest thing we can, I can find to describe what he says in several poems and an exchange of letters with this Fatimid Shiite uh, missionary or, and poet and thinker in his own right. And this is Mu'ayyid Fiddin Ashirazi. And he says, not only should you not eat meat and fish, but you should also avoid honey and milk and any other animal products, just because you don't know the kind of harm that you'll do. And he says, people of faith, err on the side of not doing harm because they just don't know what kind of harm that they're doing. After 18 months in Baghdad, El Ma'ari would return to Ma'arat in Nu'man, where he lived out the rest of his life. Despite leading an ascetic lifestyle, he was a popular local and attracted students hoping to learn from him. El Ma'ari died in 1057. In line with his antinatalist views, his self-composed epitaph reads, this is my father's crime against me, which I myself committed against none. I asked Kevin about Al Ma'ari's influence in the region and beyond. He had a major influence for centuries, but then, you know, leading up to like what we call the Nahda today, sort of the 19th century, you know, renaissance or awakening of, you know, rediscovery of, of Arabic classics in the Middle East. It wasn't until Tah Hussein started writing about him again in the early 20th centuries, you know, the famous Egyptian intellectual um, and, and for a time government official before he was 
you know, stripped of his post. Who Tah Hussein, of course, was himself, you know, considered himself a free thinker and was also blind. And so I think in these two ways, really saw a piece of himself in Al Ma'ari and, uh, you know, writes about him in the days, Al Ayyam, you know, his autobiography. He wrote one of his two PhD dissertations because, of course, he did two PhD <laughs> dissertations. <laughs> That's what you all do. Yeah, like you do, like you do. Anyway, just, you know, engaged with his work throughout his life, Tar Hussein did. Uh, and and he, you know, really kind of brought him back to, I guess, um, you know, regional consciousness, if you want to think of it that way. Even someone like uh, Sami al-Baroudi, who wrote, you know, in the second half of the 19th century and kind of compiled a large work of of greatest hits, I guess, of classical Arabic poetry it doesn't really include al Ma'ari in that. It really, you know, was Tah Hussein was one of the first to sort of bring him back. And uh, Amin, so Amin Rihani, his, you know, al Ma'ari sort of had an early influence on him in his career, as far as I can tell, you know, published translations of al Ma'ari into English in like in 1903. I, I believe Gibran sort of collaborated with uh, drawings in, in, in one of these works. Um, and, you know, Rihani, sort of sees in El Ma'ari a forerunner to Omar Khayyam. And that was one of sort of his main, you know, connections that, that he makes. And of course, you know, people at the time would have been in the West, very familiar with Omar Khayyam from um, Fitzgerald's translation, especially, uh, you know, a jug of wine, a loaf of bread, and thou, uh, you know, this very sort of <laughs> oratund, you know, King James sounding um, English of Omar Khayyam. So anything connected to that, you know, would have made El Mahdi uh, more popular. And again, like I said, even today, people still look to El Mahdi as this sort of atheist's hero, uh, you know, free thinkers everywhere who have any kind of problem with, uh, with received religious authority that tells them they can't think or say or do certain things. Uh, you know, for them, El Mahdi's voice says, oh, no, you know, I, I, I use my reason. That's my, <laughs> that's my faith. Which uh, again, you know, I totally understandable why why that would resonate with people. Personally, Kevin, what attracted you to El Ma'ari, and why do you think that he deserves to be known more than he is today? It's a great question. And as I said earlier, um, you know, just reading this first line of poetry by him, I wasn't familiar with this tradition of zuhud in Arabic, or even of you know, sort of memento mori in European traditions. And so to read something like this, especially you know, slogging through. The, the technicalities of the, you know, the poetry itself and the line, and then finally having the idea hit home and realize what he was saying to think, why, why is he talking like this? And what led him to such pessimism and all this kind of stuff, you know, that sort of touched off this, this interest in me. Also his poetry's and his, his writing, actually his poetry is not, well, his language is very difficult. And so I, was attracted to the challenge of trying to figure out, you know, even just from a, you know, linguistic standpoint, some of the stuff that he's trying to do and, and just admiring sort of how he he's able to draw certain things together. He's been raked over the coals throughout the centuries for, especially in his Luzumiyat, for being too difficult in his style, you know, accused of tekeluf, which, uh, you know, roughly speaking is like, you know, his poetry is overwrought something like that like uh you know he's 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 being gratuitously difficult when he's you know choosing certain rare words or um or or sort of twisting up the syntax or something like that but uh you know again for me it's um you know it's a it's a reason to it, it speaks to 
sort of this bookish culture that I mentioned earlier, where people were experimenting with things and goes along well, for example, with the maqamat of al-hariri, which are extremely bookish. And, you know, you can imagine someone toiling over these at a desk more than you can, like sort of getting up and reciting them extempore, like poetry. And you can, you know, similar thing obtains with Amari's writing. A lot of it is the kind of stuff that, you know, it, it belongs better like on a written page. It makes more sense there than it would, you know, in like a spoken word jazz session or something like that. And, um, you know, just in terms of, you asked, you know, why, why he's worth knowing today, um, you know, the ideas he promulgated, his life, um, you know, not a very, you know, action-packed life, it seems, you know, this one trip to Baghdad, but, uh, you know, after that lived more or less a life of seclusion for like 50 years until he died in his hometown. Um, but, uh, you know, just the, just the depth and richness of his imagination and the, the reverence which people still have for him today as a, as a writer and as a thinker. And you find this even among, like, except for the sort of the most hardened, um, you know, strict fundamentalist conservative elements uh, in the region today, you'll find people who, even if they disagree with what Al-Mahdi said, like the content of his ideas and his writing, they respect him as a linguist, as a philologist, as a grammarian, as, a, as an author, as someone whose, you know, imagination took him in all different directions. That's a lot of his legacy today. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed this episode. Be sure to follow Wib underscore podcast on Instagram to stay up to date with what happened in Baghdad. Thank you.